welcome to Badass Lady Folk. I'm your host, Christine Stoddard. And this episode, I am so delighted to welcome Dr. Spring Cooper. Hi, Spring. Hi. Hi. So you are a sex educator. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, I'm a professor. So, you are a professor. Um, <laughs> Doctor. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, I teach and do research and do advocacy and service related to sexuality and sexual health. Mm -hmm. So my degree is in something called biobehavioral health, which is like an interdisciplinary approach. So we look at environment, behavior, psychology, biology, and how they all um, intermingle and intertwine to produce or prevent disease. So within that, I study sexuality and sexual health and specifically of young people because I'm really interested in, you know, setting up healthy habits and attitudes so that people have happy and fulfilling and um, like what they want in their sex lives and with their partners. So. Yeah. <laughs> so by this definition, what is a young person? Um, I study like 13 to 25 years of age. Um, so like adolescence and like up through college age, basically. Um, yeah. Young people, we say cut off as 25. So <laughs> yeah, that's when the quarter life crisis hits. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're no longer young. <laughs> so how did you get into this? Um, Actually, I had a friend in high school who had HIV, and um, mm. this person had contracted it um, through a blood transfusion when they were very young, before uh, the blood supply was tested, which now it's totally safe. You can always trust blood transfusions, but this was um, in the early 80s. And so they had contracted it, and um, in our high school, they felt like they couldn't be out about being HIV mm. positive because in a previous school they had been bullied and ostracized for that reason. So at our school they were not out about it and they came out as they graduated and I, I was young and I was just so upset that they had faced all this stigma and that they you know couldn't um, live their life as they wanted because of other people's misunderstandings and um, and bad attitudes about like what having HIV meant. So when I went to undergrad the next year at Penn State, um, there was a nonprofit at Penn State called the AIDS Project. And I started volunteering there. I did a long training with them. Um, they had like a three-month training that they put volunteers through before they allowed them to do any volunteer work. And it was very intense. And they taught us so much about um, not only like preventing you know, HIV and other sexually transmitted infections, but also like how to have conversations with people and how to negotiate condom usage and like, and how to teach people about things and how to open up, you know, so that people are willing to like talk about these things. And um, so I started volunteering at the AIDS Project because I wanted to like help promote um, understandings and um, clear up like these types of things that my friend had faced. And and I loved it. I loved I loved doing that work. Um, I volunteered at the AIDS Project for years. I ended up doing an internship there, and that was like what really um, set my interest for grad school and going into this field. So, so for people who might be interested in entering this field, what exactly did you study in undergrad and then graduate school? 
So my degrees are both called biobehavioral health. That's like a Penn State um, name for the degree. Okay. But so it's not psychology, sociology, <laughs> biology. Yeah. You could go into any of these things. Okay. Um, so many people enter sexuality from various different fields. So biobehavioral health is something um, very similar to public health, but it's a mm. little um, – it's it's not necessarily focused on the public, um, but it's related to public health. So public health is another type of degree people might use to go into sexuality, but also, yeah, um, health psychology um, specifically or psychology or women's studies. Mm -hmm. You know, there's so many different avenues to um, explore sexuality through. And um, there are a couple of, like, sexuality programs within the U.S. that are known, um, the Kinsey Institute in um – I'm blanking on the state it's in. Uh, <laughs> I, I just know they did the big fat book <laughs> that was very popular. <laughs> it's, yeah. It Not here. Um, and then also um, Widener, which is in Pennsylvania, is um, the other like well-known sexuality program in the U.S. So those are the two places that people normally go if they're like certain they want to study sexuality. But you can study sexuality, you know, through a lot of different avenues. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So what is it like being a professor compared to doing field work compared to doing uh, like public advocacy and all these other things that you've had a hand in? Um, being a professor is really cool. I don't recommend people get a PhD unless they want to be a professor, though, specifically. Um, but being a professor... <laughs> Wasn't that brutal? It's a lot of work. <laughs> um, but... You know, as you like being a professor is really cool because you are doing research on topics you are interested in. You're deciding what you want to research. And like that's the coolest thing in the world. Like mm -hmm. getting to like answer the questions that you want to know the answers to. So I do really enjoy that. And um, I love teaching, you know, so getting to help train new generations of people in the field is also really exciting. Um, and as a professor, you are expected to do service and give back to, as well. So um, advocacy can be part of that, but like there's a lot of different ways people might choose to do that. Um, but I find the advocacy really rewarding. So mm -hmm. like all of these are pieces of my job, which um, I think are super rewarding. It's, I mean, being a professor is also a very, uh, laborful time <laughs> uh draining field uh where you kind of you know always are working but it's it is very rewarding so. mm -hmm. <laughs> what are some of your favorite types of encounters that you have in the classroom like repeated questions and oh well I've so I have taught many types of classes right now I'm at a grad school so I'm teaching masters and doctoral students but my favorite is to teach undergraduate students human sexuality classes it's really fun to teach those because um, because people don't get a lot of high quality sex ed you know in high school um, so a lot of people will enter a human sexuality class in undergrad not knowing a lot about sexuality, you know, even if they are sexually experienced, you know, that doesn't mean they understand any of these processes or how to prevent things that they don't want happening or even how to create really great experiences with partners, you know. And um, so, you know, we get a lot of questions. The most <laughs> common question 
I think you know this. I think you I think you primed me for this. <laughs> I think I've told you this before. Uh, but yeah, the most common question is people love talking about anal sex. People always have questions about that. People love to ask questions about the butt in general. Um, I have a podcast called The Sex Rap where we um, answer questions about sexuality. And our episodes that get the most listens are just uh, the butt episodes. <laughs> High, way above the others. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Why do you think that is? Um, I mean, I think it's still a little more stigmatized. Um, also, you know, people, we have a lot of stigma around sexuality in general still. Mm-hmm. So just being able to like open up and ask, you know, even friends can, questions about sexuality can be hard. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, the more stigma we have around something, the more it becomes difficult to navigate, you know, in your life. So um, I think a lot of people don't have trustworthy places they can go to ask mm. those questions, unfortunately, which was one of the reasons we created the podcast, because we wanted a, like, um, well-informed, you know, educated, non-stigmatizing place where people could just go and find the answers to their questions and feel safe and private and, you know, get the download. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Speaking of safety and privacy, you are a revenge porn <laughs> trailblazer. So could you remind me exactly <laughs> what it was you accomplished? Because I know it was great. And what terrible situation you were in. Um, so in January 2018, um, I had an ex post some um, images of me, intimate images of me, and um, posted my name, my face, my contact information with these images. And um, the first time they went up, I, you know, I just couldn't believe it. I, mm-hmm. I was like in denial and I was, you know, messaging all my friends, like, what am I supposed to do? And um, I went to get uh, an order of protection, a restraining order um, that day. Um, but then the images kept going up and different images would go up and then videos started going up and every time my contact information would be shared with them. So then I would get thousands of people from the internet contacting me, um, directly to my phone or through my work email actually, um, was information that he posted. So I would have people contacting me and they would tell me, um, that I was a dirty slut or that they would share my photos more widely if I didn't do what they said and they would try to blackmail me or they would tell me that they had come to my photos that morning and then like beg for more. I mean, all sorts of things. And I was being harassed regularly, um, over the course of most of 2018 because he kept posting and this was just happening regularly. So, um, I was like, you know, I was just leaving my phone at home. I was like trying to disengage from the internet as much as possible because it was just traumatizing at all times, you know, and I would just be like walking down the street and like a new set of photos would go up and then I'd be getting all these uh, like alerts on my phone and it was like I had been sexually assaulted like right there in that moment and I'm just standing Mm. on the street and uh, no one can help me, you know, and um, so... The law had been passed in New York City um, like weeks before my f- first post went up. And so I was able to press charges. And 
because it had just been passed, I was the first one in New York City. And New York City passed it before the state, so it was the first one in all of New York. And I was able to press charges, um, but the police at the time didn't really know the law or understand it yet. They didn't know how to collect evidence. They didn't know how to support me. So, like, the whole process was traumatizing over and over and Mm -hmm. over. Um, And... I'm very lucky that I had a very strong support system. The court case actually took four years to complete. It just finished a year ago. So um, to actually come to conclusion, and I did win the case, but it was, I mean, the whole time was horrible. So I, Mm -hmm. like every time we would get ready for court, you know, I'd have to go through all of the details over and over and like relive it over and over. And then something would happen and we wouldn't go to court and then it would Mm. go again and again. So, um, I, I only stuck with it to be honest, because I had so many people reaching out to me thanking me for what I was doing because they hadn't been able to do that for whatever reason because they had a religion or a job or family that they felt like they couldn't press charges or or they couldn't because the law hadn't been passed yet or whatever was the case. And I would have given it up so many times because it was it was horrible for me. Mm-hmm. It was not a good process. You know, that was not a healing <laughs> process in any way. Right. If anything, it was delaying the healing. And so, um, but I felt, you know, that this was an important thing to do. And out of that, I've um, done a lot of advocacy. I'm part of the New York City um, Task Force Against Cyber sexual assault, um, which is an amazing task force. They do so many great things. They're always working to um, strengthen the laws and to support survivors. Um, and and I mean, these things become more and more important, especially mm-hmm. as AI-generated images become more and more easy to create, and people can actually create revenge porn um, where... so. Anybody can be a victim, even oh. if uh, even if you've never taken a photo, even if you've never shared. And I mean, you know, and um, it's it's I think it's just going to be more and more of a problem. And so mm. it's something that, you know, we really need to talk about and like teaching people about consent and teaching people, you know, about respecting people's boundaries. Like these are the things that like we teach at like very elementary levels in comprehensive sexuality education that need to be part of everybody's understanding and vocabulary so that we have this ability to um, to set the boundaries for ourselves and so that other people also can respect those and mm-hmm. be in conversation with that. Um, and and when we ignore sexuality or push it in the shadows and don't talk about it, then that's what is creating the ability for, you know, sexual assault of all types to actually proliferate more and more. And so um, it's really important that people also who have experienced these things are able to come out and to talk about them and share their stories and um, and get help as well. Yeah, well, I'm so sorry that happened to you, but I'm also really proud of you and grateful to you. So for someone who is experiencing an issue with revenge porn, how do they report it? What's the process now if they want to take action? (laughs) Um, I mean, you can report it to, it it depends on where you live. Mm -hmm. Um, Almost almost every state has laws against it now, though all the laws vary in um, what type of um, things count as revenge porn and also um, how you can press charges. But going to the police is how you would report it. Um, and then every 
there's different like takedown measures for every site. So every site that um, you have things posted on, you have to like go to that specific site and figure out how to navigate that. Um, there are some resources that have been created for survivors. I have a website that we've created out of my research for survivors to like help them try to navigate all of these things like so that um, they can kind of go to this one place um, and say, okay, here's like all the different things I need to do. Um, so those, we have those available, um, but it's, it's a nightmare no matter what. <laughs> it's good. It's, um, and um, I think, you know, that we are, we're trying to improve these processes and learn how to help people um, heal from these things as well. And from some of my research, we found that one of the things that all of, we did some research with people who said they had gotten over cybersexual assault in some way. So we were mm -hmm. looking at a strengths-based approach. So people who had experienced and felt like they had gotten over it. So we did in-depth interviews with them to say like, okay, so like what, what helped you get to this place? How did you get from being um, in this like victim mindset into like a survivor mindset? And all of the people that we interviewed actually became advocates in some way. So they, maybe it was at an individual level or maybe they were like starting marches, you know, there's like a variety of ways that people did this. But this act of like um, talking about it, of like trying to make it better for other people is apparently incredibly healing. And um, that was just something that was common that we saw among all the people who said that they had gotten over it. And so... Um, on the website that we created for people that had experienced this, we also have tools to like help people think about how they might be an advocate in some way, in what way makes sense for them to like start that process mm. as a way to actually help them on that process of healing. Hmm. Neat. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. It's very heavy, but it's important. <laughs> yeah. Gosh. I wanted to go back to consent, um, and I'm curious about how you teach that to young adults. Mm. Um, and if they're, I mean, from what I observed, it seems like this national conversation about consent really seemed to start around 2015, 2016, um, and that prior to that it was you were lucky to be in spaces where that was discussed and I'm curious about what what changes what differences you've noticed mm. in that conversation um I mean ideally we were talking about consent you know with people as young as when people can talk, you know, yeah. we want to teach people about respect for their own personal bodies, their own personal space and respecting other people's bodies and space as well. And um, we like to teach consent as like a very um, active process. So it's not just a one time thing. It's a continual process of um, understanding how someone is feeling in relation to you and continually checking in on that and, and asking very specific questions, you know. And so we teach, like, this even with young kids, like, asking before they give a hug, mm -hmm. you know, to their little friends or teaching, you know, aunts and uncles to ask their young people in their lives if they want a hug before just hugging them. So we start with, like, these very basic um, ideas of just, like, asking before touching, asking mm -hmm. before coming into contact with somebody, and then continually to navigate that. And um, 
The pushback that we sometimes get is people say things like, oh, that's not sexy or that's not hot. <laughs> and and I have some research that I've done um, with young people looking at, you know, how they navigate consent. And um, one of the things that people say that they use to navigate consent is like vibes, right? <laughs> and they're like, oh, well, the vibes were there. So I knew we had consent. And and there's a little bit of reluctance sometimes to like do a check-in. And sometimes that can come from a fear that if you ask the question, the other person might say no. Mm-hmm. Like um, there might be, you know, some fear around like getting an answer that you don't want. Um, but usually when people actually engage in this process, they find it clunky at first. <laughs> there's like <laughs> something like that takes a little getting used to about it. But then people actually really do like it. I mean, Mm -hmm. it is like you feel respected as the person being asked questions. And as the person asking, you also are very sure there's no uncertainty. So like there is no like inner workings like, oh, is this okay? Is this okay? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it's okay. And so it actually gives you this ability to like relax and to soften and be like, (laughs) oh, I can enjoy this now, Mm -hmm. you know? So, um, it has like a lot of benefits, not only the, um, certainty that you have consent but also like I would say like your nervous system can relax you can Mm -hmm. actually enjoy you can have more pleasure um by virtue of this process so yeah but I mean teaching it is really just getting people used to it just getting used to and like I mean, you can teach people to just practice it in their everyday lives, you know, Mm. like asking before you like touch someone on the shoulder, you know, asking before you give a hug, asking even like, do you like shaking hands? Would you like, would you rather do an elbow bump or fist bump Mm -hmm. or like whatever, you know, like all of these things are things that can and do bother people actually, you know, Um, especially in a post or COVID world. Um, <laughs> and so how how we're navigating people's boundaries all the time is important and um, should be, I think, more um, part of our, like, everyday um, thinking process. Mm-hmm. What are some of the surprising moments that you have teaching consent to young people? You talked about the pushback, but what is it like to watch the aha moments mm. for them? Mm. Um, you know, I would say that the most like rewarding thing in teaching young people sexuality in general is like seeing this growth and this development, Mm -hmm. which is why I love teaching the undergrad sexuality classes because there's more development and growth (laughs) and it's like so fun. And, um, and you know, I have people write these reflection papers and when you read a reflection paper and they're like, you know, I didn't get this, I didn't get this, I didn't get this until I watched this movie or until mm. someone said this thing in class. Or, And it's, you know, it's exposure to ideas that are different than your own and and having them being humanized, having, like, understand someone else's experience, understand someone else's story. And, you know, when that happens, that's, like, when the light bulb goes off. That's kind mm-hmm. of what is really allowing people to learn, to change, to grow. And, um, so I think, you know, that's so important, like, and that's like, you know, it's exposure to art and to, um, movies and to things that like, you know, are, have these broader ideas, but it's also exposure to people that are different than you and like Mm -hmm. having open and vulnerable conversations. And like, that can be hard to do outside the um, case of like a, you know, classroom that's specifically devoted to that. Um, and so, you know, I think it's, 
it's kind of sad that, you know, we don't have a lot mm-hmm. of spaces like that, especially like for adults to like um, to continue to be exposed to new ideas and perspectives and um, and allow ourselves to like really uh, blossom into our own sexuality mm-hmm. and our um, our own like what we want from from our sexual lives and partners and things. Yeah. <laughs> what are ways that you wish people in their 30s and 40s specifically would approach their sexuality differently or, or just practice things differently? Because there is, for many people of this age, the idea that, oh, okay, I've been active for a while now, like I know what I'm doing. Yeah. But do we? Like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No. <laughs> course not um I mean we all think that you know we think like um oh I've been doing whatever for so long I know everything about it um I mean I think like I I have this podcast on sexuality and we um explore different topics on every episode and I mean we've been doing this for like six seven years now and we still mm-hmm. have a backlog of hundreds of questions <laughs> like <laughs> we're never gonna run out of questions that, that's not the problem um but you know I think that like Anybody can learn more. Like people say, like, oh, I know what pronouns are. I know, I know mm. why we use uh, pronouns. I know to respect other people's pronouns. But like, listening to a podcast episode about pronouns, you're gonna actually learn much more than that. You're gonna learn like what it's like for people. You're, you're gonna learn like why it's so important, and mm-hmm. you're gonna like get a little bit of that humanizing, and then you're also gonna like get some tips on how to practice it. You're gonna like so like we offer you know like not only some baseline information, but then like ways to think about it, ways to like practice it, ways to like um, think about these things in your own personal life. And so, I think like there's always more to learn. And so I would say like, you know, find the way that you want to learn it. Like you can read books, you can listen to the podcast, you can like do whatever, but like there is always more to learn. And, and as we are (laughs) aging, like we are changing, you know? Mm -hmm. And like a lot of times people have been afraid to try things, whether it's, you know, with the gender of their partners or even with like how they're expressing their dressing or, um, or what types of activities they want to try. And, there's so much stigma around these things that people might have never wanted to try things before, but then mm. as they come into a little more confidence in themselves or they're um, understanding themselves more deeply as they age, um, these things like might come out and they might be ready, but like you also need to be exploring and educating yourself so that you can do that, so mm-hmm. that you can like have this like full expression of yourself. So like, it's like never stop learning. Like it's sexuality, but it's like everything, you know, it's like, go ahead, like find a way to like find some more information about it and like dive into it because it's only going to help you. <laughs> what are you looking forward to with the podcast? What are some next steps? Or are you going to keep doing what you've been doing? <laughs> yeah, I know. I think like, it, it feels like important work. Like it feels like, um, you know, we're creating something that is easily accessible that people can listen to from ever, from anywhere, you know, with very low, um, startup costs. Like you just have to have a pair of headphones and some type of device connected to the internet, you know? Um, so I really like the accessibility of that and, um, what we're doing. Um, I, but also podcast listening is going down across all podcasts, even Mm -hmm. like across the most listened to podcasts are um, experiencing um, declines in listenership. Um, So, uh, you know, I think 
we need to keep thinking, you know, we always need to be evolving. How are we reaching people? How are we like, um, how are we doing what people need, like in the space they need it? Right. So, um, I mean, I think that there are some problems with like, like, okay, we could just go to TikTok, but then we're not able to get like the depth of information Mm. you want. You know, you would have to have like a chain of like so many TikToks to like get across like what we get through in a podcast episode. So I'm not sure kind of what the next evolution of that might Mm -hmm. look like. Um, But I think everything needs to keep changing and evolving. So I would say we're definitely not going to do it forever, but (laughs) for now. (laughs) Where should people go to find out more about your work? The Sex Wrap is the podcast at The Sex Wrap on any social media platform. Um, you can Google Spring Cooper and find me on the internet. Um, <laughs> okay, you can find okay. my, uh, you know, whatever you might want to find about me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Said like an academic. <laughs> no branding, Christine. You know how to search things. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much, Spring. That is all the time that we have. You have been listening to Dr. Spring Cooper with me, your host, Christine Stoddard, on Badass Lady Folk. We are airing on Manhattan Neighborhood Network, Radio Free Brooklyn, podcast platforms, YouTube, etc. And on MN, we air Thursdays at 1 p.m. Thanks so much. Tune in next time.